This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. Just a quick announcement. I'm trying to grow our listenership, so I hope you'll share Kick-Ass News with two of your friends this week, or better yet, share it with all of your friends on your social media. And if you'd like to pitch in and become a part of what I'm doing here, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews. Whatever you can do to support the podcast is appreciated, and it shows me that you value this little show that I put out every week. Thanks for listening, and now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. We all know the blessing and the curse of the Internet. We have the Library of Alexandria many times over available at our fingertips. But along with an abundance of information, there's an extraordinary amount of misinformation. Cleverly disguised commercial sites run by pharmaceutical companies masquerading as medical advice resources, clickbaiting headlines all over our Facebook feeds, chain emails circulated by friends with headlines like what the mainstream media doesn't want you to know, or you won't believe what the Obama administration just did. Sites like AlexJonesInfoWars.com posting wildly irresponsible conspiracy theories as real news. In the age of the Internet, it's getting harder and harder to verify the information we consume. Well, my guest today is going to reveal some of the tricks used by the lying weasels in the media and online to deceive you, and he'll share his tips to separate the facts from the fakes. Dr. Daniel J. Levitin is Dean of Social Sciences at the Minerva Schools at KGI in San Francisco and a faculty member at the Center for Executive Education in the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He taught at Stanford University for 10 years as a lecturer in the departments of music, anthropology, history of science, computer science, and psychology, and was the James McGill Professor of Psychology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Music at McGill University. He's the author of the number one bestseller, This Is Your Brain on Music, which was published in 19 languages and spent more than one year on the New York Times bestseller list. His second book, The World in Six Songs, hit the bestseller list in its first week of release. And his third book, The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload, also became a number one bestseller. Now in his new book, A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age, Dr. Levitin offers a primer for vetting the information you consume and honing your own personal BS detector. Today, we'll talk about the ways supposedly reliable news sources like USA Today and Fox News monkey with charts and graphs to fool you. We discuss why you can't always trust the so-called experts and how to tell whether a website is a reliable news source or has a hidden agenda. We talk about fact-checking the 2016 election and why not all polls are created equally. We discuss some terms you should know when looking at health data. We make sense of the proliferation of counter-knowledge on the Internet and debunk the anti-vaxxer movement. And finally, we'll take a look at some misleading headlines on today's Drudge Report, when Dr. Daniel Levitin gives us a crash course in critical thinking, coming up in just a moment. Professor Daniel Levitin is Dean of Social Sciences at the Minerva Schools at KGI in San Francisco and a faculty member at the Center for Executive Education in the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He's the author of This Is Your Brain on Music, The World in Six Songs, The Organized Mind, and now his latest, A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. Daniel Levitin, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ben. First of all, you use the word critical thinking here, and I feel that those words are getting abused a lot now. <laughs> you know, conspiracy-minded people and people who say things like, don't trust the mainstream media, I, in my opinion, confuse critical thinking with paranoia. 
Give us a scientific definition of critical thinking. What is it? Boy, a lot of and a lot of words are getting abused these days, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I I ran into a group of uh, people who are part of the truth movement, and as near as I can tell, uh, the people who are part of the truth movement don't believe in anything that's at all objectively true. Oh uh, yeah, the, what is it? The nine eleven truthers. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I think a scientific definition of critical thinking, and it applies outside the sciences too. I mean, it applies in arts and right. humanities scholarship. I, I, cutting through it all, I think critical thinking is evidence-based decision-making. And you acquire the evidence from what you believe, using your best judgment, are reputable sources. Uh, and you hold off your opinion until you get enough evidence in to form an opinion and I think of it somewhat like a courtroom. You know, if you watch courtroom dramas on TV or, or movies, uh, you know, the judge will rule, I'm sorry, that's inadmissible evidence, right? Yeah. Or a witness comes in and they say, oh, well, I saw that car hit that pedestrian and uh, it's as clear as day. And then the opposing counsel says, well, how many drinks did you have? Well, 12, you know, and, and isn't it true that you're blind? Well, yes. <laughs> so now you have an unreliable witness, and it's the same with critical thinking. To apply the same standards of evidence that one would apply in a courtroom yeah. to the things that they're evaluating in everyday life. Yeah, that's exactly right. What, what would be kind of the hierarchy of evidence? Well, so I think, first of all, uh, you have to ask yourself, is the... the the person who's reporting this to you reliable? Mm -hmm. Do they really know what they're talking about? And there are several different ways we can unpack that. Um, certainly there's a hierarchy of news sources. Uh, even though people complain about the mainstream media, now, of course, um, the claim of Trump today, <laughs> I don't mean to date our, our podcast. Oh, that's all right. The claim of Trump today is that the mainstream media is colluding with the Democrats to rig the election. And, you know, we have such a—I I don't know that most people understand that the election is decentralized to such an extent. You know, counties have power, states have right. power. It would be really difficult to rig things at a national level. <laughs> uh, you could rig them at a local level, yeah. and arguably that's what happened in JFK's election. But the, there are, I think the mainstream media tend to get it right more often mm -hmm. than the non-mainstream media. Uh, they don't get it right all the time, but you know, thing, publications like the New York Times are constantly printing retractions and clarifications. They do try to get it right, uh, and then, you know, if you if somebody tells you something, you can ask them, "How do you know that? Who told it mm -hmm. to you?" Um, if you're looking at a graph or a statistic or a chart, ask yourself, "Is this even reasonable? Is it plausible? Does it mm -hmm. do the numbers add up?" One of my Favorite examples of this is um, asking yourself, what's really going on with the statistic? Is there more than meets the eye? So you, you probably remember the claim that four out of five dentists recommend Colgate. Yes. Turns out Colgate got sued for this. Uh, it's not because the claim isn't true, but the implication of the claim is that they're recommending <laughs> Colgate to the exclusion of other toothpaste. Right. And you know, when I hear a statistic like that, I think critical thinking and acting like your own judge and jury uh, in a courtroom would, would make me respond, well, first of all, who are these dentists? Do they still have their licenses? Yeah. Are they on the payroll of Colgate? Where, did the Colgate folks ask five of them and we're looking at literally four out of five? Or did they ask 500 and we're looking at four out of 500, 400 out of 500? Uh, but then the next question I want to know is, uh, what were they asked, these dentists? It turns out in this particular case, they were allowed to recommend as many toothpastes as they wanted. So four out of five of them recommended Colgate, but they also recommended Crest and a bunch of others. So the claim, although it's technically true, the implication is a little bit off. Right. It's a, a lie by omission, I guess. I, I, would, I that, would say, yeah. Would that be an yeah. accurate description? Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's hard, though, for the average person because... When we see something like that, we assume that there are controls in place, there are regulations and so forth to make sure that the information that we're seeing in an ad or whatnot is accurate. We, we rely on the FDA. And right. And the, and the Federal Trade Commission. So in America and in, in the UK, 
you can't advertise something falsely without yeah. running afoul of the FTC uh, or the the F, uh, uh, FCC. Yeah. Um, and depending on what you're claiming, the Food and Agriculture you know Commission <laughs> uh, gets involved. Uh, FDA, um, Food and Drug Administration. But um, yes, what what does the average person do? Well, I think that if the claim is specific. Um, you know, four out of five dentists were asked which toothpaste they preferred, uh-huh. right? Then then you know you've got something. If the claim is vague, you should be suspicious because okay. somebody might be trying to put something over on you. C-SPAN claims yeah. that they are available to 100 million viewers. Okay. Now, I'm trying to think how many, 100 million viewers, how many people are there in the world? Well, seven billion people in the world. Okay, so that's a credible claim then. There's three hundred and eighty million or so in yeah. the United States. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's a credible claim. But what exactly does that make you think that a lot of people are watching C-SPAN? It might lead one to believe that they're regularly watching C-SPAN every right. every week or right. every day. But they use the word available. It's available to 100 million people. Oh, okay. That just means that 100 million people, <laughs> if they call their cable company and ask for it. <laughs> Could subscribe to it. Okay. Wow. I mean, my book is available to about 5 billion people as far as I can tell because it's (laughs) 5 billion people are within 100 miles of an interconnection, a a train depot, a bookstore. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly with regard to medicine, you talk about health reporting statistics and the difference between the words incidence rate and prevalence rate. Right. And that's kind of a useful example of that. I don't think that most people even know the difference. Well, and the problem is if you don't know the difference, you can get hoodwinked by a drug company or a, mm-hmm. a, a medical claim uh, or product. So the incidence rate is the number of new uh, counts we have per year. So if we're talking about the incidence of stomach cancer, uh, the incidence of psoriasis. This is how many new cases are reported in a year. The prevalence is how many people already have it. Uh, okay. And it makes a difference, So right? that could be, yeah. I mean, anyone that's alive and has the particular disease. That's part of the They may have prevalence. had it for 30 years. Well, exactly. Okay. So if you're looking at an epidemic, it shows up in the incidence rate mm-hmm. first. If you don't understand the difference... You could be misled to thinking that there's a higher chance of you getting a particular disease than there really is. Yeah, exactly. Or, or that it's growing. Or that it's fatal. Yeah. I mean, you know, the prostate cancer has been in the news a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, men over 50 are likely to have it. Mm-hmm. Men over 70 almost certainly have it. But they don't die from it. They, they die with it rather yeah. than from it because in most cases, not all, but in most cases it's benign. So there's a case where the prevalence rate um, can help reassure you that, you know, finding out that you have it is not a death sentence. We think that there that cancer rates are escalating, that there's a cancer ec- epidemic and right. you know, cancer's been skyrocketing, but it's really only because people aren't dying of other things. <laughs> right. So, right. 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 So uh, exactly. Cancer... Um, cancer detection is better. People used to die of typhoid or of, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if you got a cut on your finger, you could die of the infection, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah. know, in the pre-penicillin world. So um, people are living longer, which is a great triumph of medical science and medical practice. Uh, and they're living long enough that they can get cancer, which they didn't <laughs> used to get. So yeah, cancer rates are increasing. But as you say, only because people are living long enough to get it. Now, you know, we tend to be visual people. We trust our eyes. And you said the lying weasels, as you call them sometimes, will play on that because they have ways of monkeying with the graphs and the charts that we see, say, in USA Today, which particularly loves graphs and charts. What are some of the ways that they deceive you with the visuals? Well, so there's a whole bunch of things that people can do with charts and graphs uh, to deceive you. And they either do it because they don't know better themselves, and they're just looking for a pretty picture, or they do it because they're trying to manipulate you. Um, the first thing you should ask yourself when you look at a graph or you know, some kind of a chart, what we call visual displays mm-hmm. of quantitative information, uh, what, the first thing you should look at is, 
those uh, little vertical and horizontal lines with the tick marks, what we call mm-hmm. the axes, are they labeled? Are there actually numbers next to them? Well, if they're not, then it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> there are a whole lot in USA Today and on Fox News really? where there are tick marks that are unlabeled. Or even if they're numbers, they don't tell you what the numbers are. <laughs> are the numbers, you know, maybe they show you a sales graph. Well, what is this? Is this the number of units sold, the number mm-hmm. of dollars? Is it the number of units sold minus the returns? Yeah. You know, uh, is it the number of cupcakes that the graph preparer <laughs> ate while preparing the graph? You don't know if it's not labeled. So I wouldn't trust anything when the axes aren't labeled. And that they do that in USA Today even? Oh, yeah. Wow. Fox News has uh, published pie charts, though, on several occasions <laughs> Where the slices of the pie add up to more than a hundred percent. You're kidding me. And I was I was at Fox News doing an interview, and um, they prepared some nice graphics to go along with my TV yeah. interview. And um, I ran into the guy who had prepared the graphics, and the graphics he prepared for me were were nice and they were accurate. Accurate, okay. But I I had already collected some examples of Fox <laughs> News graphics that were inaccurate, <laughs> or pie charts where the pie adds up to one hundred and forty percent. And but you know the first rule of a pie chart is once all the pie has been s- sliced up, there isn't any right. more. Right. Unless it's a magic pie. Right, yeah. right. Space so pie. I said to the guy. Uh, you know, I thanked him for the graphics he made for me, and I said, "Boy, you know, it's, it's nice to meet you." Uh, and I'm just curious how how does somebody like you get get a job working for Fox? <laughs> a great job. What's your background? How do you get a job being in the graphics department at Fox? He says, "Well, he says, nobody ever asked me that before." He says, "In high school, um, I wasn't particularly good at math. I was good at arts, <laughs> and so you know, I went in through the arts uh, stream in high school, and then I went and got an associate's degree in art. And I always liked drawing things, and it's a really good job for somebody okay. who likes drawing things. And I was just never any good at math, so I went to arts. <laughs> You're kidding me! And this person's still working there, you think? As far as I know. Oh my God! And this was a man, right? This yeah. wasn't some pretty blonde that Roger Ailes bounced on his knee or something, huh? This I'm, not, was... I'm not going anywhere near that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and another thing you say about graphs is that you have to be careful where you start. Yeah. I mean, you know, it does, is the graph beginning at zero or is – because you, you give an example in there where it's a 4% difference, but the graph starts at like, I forget, 600 or something like that. Yeah, well, so – It looks like a huge difference when you look at the visuals. Right. So uh, there are a lot, number of examples of this. Uh, one of them was Fox News showing what would happen if the Bush tax cuts were to expire during the yeah. Obama uh, administration. And um, in fact, uh, the current tax rate was uh, 35%. And if the tax cuts were to expire, what some taxpayers would pay would go from 35 to 39.6%. Mm-hmm. So uh, the difference between 35% and 39.6%, that 4.6 percentage point increase, works out to about that, that people would pay 13% more taxes. Yeah. But the way they drew the graph, instead of showing you a, a bar that goes from 0 to 35% and another bar from 0 to 39.6%, <laughs> so you could really see this 13% difference in the height of the bars, they don't start the graph till about 34%. So the first bar is tiny, and the second bar looms over it and looks six times as big. And it makes a very effective emotional point, but not a very accurate statistical point. (laughs) What makes someone a credible expert on a particular topic? Getting back to your courtroom analogy, Ben, um, it turns out that you know, a lot of courtrooms will bring in a so-called expert, and that person isn't really expert. Right. And so to answer your question, how do we know if somebody is an expert, I'll tell you, expertise tends to be very narrow and domain-specific. Mm-hmm. So you can't just bring in a physicist, <laughs> right? I mean, you can, but depending on what you're going to ask, you might want a string theorist or a quantum mm-hmm. physicist or a cosmologist. Um, if you're talking about um, causes of death— you probably want to bring in a coroner or perhaps an epidemiologist who is really a statistician that pours through medical data. There was a case that I talk about in the book of a young woman who tragically got convicted of murdering her own infant based on testimony by a pediatrician. 
Now, pediatricians are expert in a lot of things, but they're not really expert in what causes infants to die. They're yeah. experts in keeping okay. infants alive yeah. and in diseases of infancy and developmental trajectories. Uh, but this person testified falsely based on some statistics that he misunderstood, and she was wow. sentenced to, to prison. And she was exonerated finally after three years when some exculpatory DNA evidence emerged. But what you would have needed in that situation, you know, I think the judge or, or you or me or anybody could stop and think, well, who can testify as to, you know, why an infant would die? Well, a coroner. That's what they do. Right. A forensic right. doctor, or, you know, or an epidemiologist. We're very easily impressed by a Nobel Prize, but if a Nobel Prize winner in economics is uh, being interviewed on physics, then we should probably be skeptical of that. Well, and this actually happened. William Shockley uh, shared in the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. for the invention of the transistor, mm -hmm. one of three people who invented it. Uh, he was a Stanford professor, and he developed deeply racist views in which he argued that blacks were genetically inferior and had a lower IQ than whites. Mm -hmm. And he got some traction with these offensive arguments, I believe, because people thought, oh, well, he's got a Nobel Prize in physics. He must be smart. <laughs> he must really know some things that the rest of us don't know. And the fact is, yeah, he was smart in physics, but he had no training in genetics or intelligence mm -hmm. assessment, and he was wrong. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with Dr. Daniel Levitin when we come back in just a minute. If you're enjoying today's episode, you'll like A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age by my guest today, Dr. Daniel J. Levitin. And right now you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com slash kickassnews for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be A Field Guide to Lies or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com slash kickassnews, or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. In the book, you talk a lot about online news sources, and, I mean, it's so hard to evaluate the, the the just the enormous amount of information being thrown at us on social media and in Google searches. How do you evaluate an online news source? Yeah, so um, particularly if you're trying to evaluate scientific or medical information, mm -hmm. um, you want to steer clear of. Well, you want to be appropriately and suitably skeptical about a .com, okay. which is a commercial site. So let's take a, a concrete example. Suppose that you're wondering whether almonds um, bestow health benefits. You, you read something in Ladies' Home Journal that eating more almonds is going to be good for you. Uh, and you're not sure that Ladies' Home Journal is actually at the cutting edge of medical science, <laughs> but you're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. So you do a little Google search. And you end up at a, a website uh, called thetruthaboutalmonds.com. Uh, well, you might want to ask yourself who operates the website. When, as soon as you land on a website, appreciate that this is not the end of the research enterprise. It's the beginning. Who runs the website? Could it be a commercial organization like the Almond Growers of America? Um, what if the website was like americansforbetternutrition.org? That's probably better, but it still could be a shill for the almond growers of America who have registered right. that name. Right. Yeah, they fund it. It can be a nonprofit and has motives and so forth. But generally yeah. speaking, a .org is going to be you – know, .orgs are going to tend to be more often neutral than .coms. Yeah. .edus are educational uh, – Organizations, 501c3 nonprofit educational, usually universities. Mm -hmm. The .edu isn't foolproof, but if you read a scientific or medical finding that's come out of a research lab that's at a university, uh, in most cases, researchers are required to divulge any financial uh, conflicts of interest if they were paid by the almond growers, for example. <laughs> um, and their papers have gone through peer review in most cases. Okay. 
So a .edu is usually a good thing. Okay. .gov is good if Centers for Disease Control, cdc.gov, the fda.gov, NIH, National Institutes of Health.gov. Those are going to tend to give you neutral um, information about about medical and health claims. Now- Sounds like a lot of work. I know it? that's the problem. It does sound like a lot of work, and you know nobody has time to verify all these things. I'm wondering, would it be a helpful heuristic to assume that more often than not, if a website corresponds to a dead tree newspaper or a magazine or journal, that would be more reliable than just a website or online news site alone? It, it wouldn't necessarily have to be. You mm-hmm. could imagine, I mean, certainly there are a lot of great journalists, investigative journalists uh, with credentials who have gone completely digital. And there are a lot of sites uh, that are completely digital and don't have a dead tree equivalent. But it's still, I, I still say it's best to play the odds here. And, okay. you know, institutions like the New York Times, CBS News, okay. NPR, that that have a kind of fit. Well, NPR is a okay. different case, but I mean, you know, things that have a physical presence and have been around for a while tend, on the average, to be more reliable. But there are exceptions. Okay, my problem is whenever I point to those sources on something, particularly with the election, I get people who say, "Oh, well, that's the mainstream media. We don't trust them," and dismiss it outright. <laughs> well, it's tough. Um, I think what you're looking for. Uh, and I don't know what's wrong with the main, with being in the mainstream media. I, I thought that that would be a good thing usually. It, traditionally, we, <laughs> mainstream media in, inferred some kind of credibility usually. Well, I think so. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I've, had, I've had a number of interactions with the New York Times, uh, so I know their system the best. They've mm-hmm. reported on my research in 17 separate articles over the years. And I've written for them op-eds and book reviews. And my experience with them has been that they are tremendously rigorous, punctilious. I'll give you an example. I wrote a book review uh, or an op-ed, one or the other, I don't recall. But in in either case, it's not a news story. It's it's clearly my opinion. (laughs) And I I said something about how the brain has 100 billion neurons in the in this piece and after after I wrote the piece there were several days of copy editing and back and forth with the fact checker and on the fourth day of fact checking a new fact checker sends me an email and says how do you know that there are 100 billion neurons and I say well I have an endowed chair at McGill University one of the great neuroscience departments I'm a professor there I've been teaching it in my course for 10 years I'm the kind of people that I'm the kind of person that people come to and ask <laughs> how many neurons are there in the brain and you know I'm quoted uh, and they say well no that's not good enough we, you know really? we can't rely okay. on your expertise we need to have it from a published source <laughs> so I spent a few hours digging around, and I found a line on page 700 and something of a 1,200-page textbook (laughs) written by a Nobel Prize winner, Eric Kandel, called Fundamentals of Neuroscience. And I said, here, this page, (laughs) this line, human brain has 100 billion neurons. They say, no, that's not good enough. And I say, why not? They say, it's a textbook. It hasn't gone through peer review. (laughs) We need a peer-reviewed article where somebody (laughs) counted the number. So- uh, okay, that's pretty good. That yeah, <laughs> okay. and and my experience with them in news stories where I've been interviewed about some neuroscientific finding or whatnot, uh, they're very very rigorous. They really yeah. try to get it right. They do publish retractions. I'm with you. The mainstream media, although they're not perfect, they're a pretty good system, and you know the odds are they're going to get the story right, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just somebody who set up shop as an independent. Right, they with, have more to lose. Well, and and you know. Their journalists have training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe that journalism is a profession. It requires training. Yeah. Now, you can go to court with somebody who will act as your attorney who ha- doesn't have a law <laughs> degree, and in some jurisdictions they'll allow that, but you're taking your chances. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe in training. I'm an educator. <laughs> Getting back to this idea, though, there, I, there are a number of blogs that I find to be very accurate and okay. uh, very right. – and they're run by independents. Yeah, like Snopes. Would that be a good one? Yeah, Snopes. Uh, I, I, I assume now at this point there's such a big operation they must have professional journalists. 
Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, I have a friend who I used to work with in the music industry who runs a left-leaning blog. Okay. And I'm not saying that I'm left-leaning uh, or not. I'm just saying that um, his name is Howie Klein and he runs a blog called Down With Tyranny. Okay. And he's... I don't uh, think I've heard of that one. It's, uh, it's, it's very rigorously sourced. Okay. So... Um, He's not the mainstream media at all. He's just a guy, okay. you know, who runs a blog, and he he talks about progressive politics. And whether you're right or on the left, yeah, if you want to see an example of somebody who's just sort of set up shop on his own, who rigorously sources sources his arguments, that's a really good one. And okay. I would trust what he says as much as I would trust the New York Times. Okay, so so you can be biased and be accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, well, I don't know that he's biased. I think okay. he's biased well, in his choice of topics. Have a leaning. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, I want to talk about polls. Not all polls are created equal. What are some of the things that you look for in the polls that you're seeing this election? Well, the very first thing you want to see to see is whether they report a margin of error or not. Right. It's like a graph without labels. <laughs> if there's no margin of error, they can say anything they want. Yeah. I mean, I, I have an adorable dachshund named Winifred, and I could tell you that she's the number one candidate for mayor of Pasadena with a margin of error of 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> so if, as long as I don't mention the margin of error. Yeah. Right. Um, you also you – know, polling is very difficult because um, it only works if you can get the so-called representative sample of voters. Right. And that's hard to do. I don't know about you, but usually when pollsters call me, I don't feel like talking to them, mm -hmm. especially if they say this is only going to take 10 minutes of your time. <laughs> that, that's more time than I want to give them. Yeah. And so it might be that people like me whose politics are like mine are not going to respond to polls mm -hmm. and people whose politics are different from mine will respond to polls. Mm -hmm. And you could you can imagine how that would bias. Yeah. The Is polls. that what you would call a participation bias? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. Um, and then, you know, I might change my mind about a certain issue between now and election day. Yeah, and the sample size makes a big difference too. It sure does. Uh, the sample size has to be large enough that um, the little idiosyncrasies of one voter or another average out. It, it turns out that sampling theory, not to get too statistical, but you, you can learn a whole lot about the country with roughly a couple of thousand people mm -hmm. if they're randomly chosen and they're likely voters. And yeah, I mean, that's the, yeah. the other thing we didn't talk about is um, you can poll a bunch of people, but if they don't actually vote. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you, you want to not completely just completely useless. Right. You want to not just poll uh, eligible voters, but likely voters. Yeah. 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 I was at an event, I guess, about two months ago, and I ran into the person who is the political editor at the L.A. Times. And I asked her Mainstream about stream media. Yeah. yeah. Ironically, though, they, they're like Trump's favorite newspaper suddenly, because amid all of these polls that show Trump down against Hillary Clinton, there keeps coming up this L.A. Times poll that has him up a point or two. And yeah. I asked her, I said, what's with this L.A. Times poll? And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, don't put too much faith in that. It's a tracking poll. And so they're going to the same sample every time and just asking, are you still for Trump? Or are you still for Hillary? It's not going to a different sample each time ah. like you know many other polls that would be more credible. So it could be that their poll was already skewed right. toward Trump and they're just going back to the same bad sample. That's interesting. <laughs> that's really fascinating. But that's the one poll that Trump loves every week, keeps pointing to the L.A. Times tracking poll. And he doesn't say it's a tracking poll, right, of course. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by this idea of suspicion against the mainstream media. I, on the one hand – I think that just to get back to this topic, um, and I, that I'm so glad you raised it. I I, I do think that there are, that conspiracies exist mm -hmm. in the world, right? And I do think that um, people who work for the media may have their own individual biases that creep into their work, and it may be a kind of person with a particular political bent that tends to go into one kind of profession versus another, but. With that said, and I and I think all you know, the whole reason I published this book, A Field Guide to Lies, is that I want people to be skeptical. I want them to mm -hmm. ask the question. So, you know, contemplating whether there might be a conspiracy or not is, 
I think, you know, the right thing to do if you want to be suitably skeptical. But I don't think that conspiracies exist um, as, as deeply and as widespread as some of the conspiracy theorists or truthers yeah. would have us think. And I really don't think that there's a conspiracy uh, between the media, between the New York Times <laughs> and their large Mexican stakeholder. Uh, and, and I don't think that... Um, I don't think that 9/11 was a conspiracy yeah. and and I looked into it. I Did you? As part part of being open-minded and being engaging in scientific reasoning is that you hold off forming an opinion until you look at the evidence and you try to look at it objectively. So, I spent a few days looking at the claims that the 9/11 conspiracy folks made. Mm -hmm. Cuz I really wanted to understand it. And About the controlled implosion and uh, how, you know, steel wouldn't heat up to that degree on uh, jet fuel alone? Are the, am I right? Is that yeah. kind of the gist of it or more yeah. or less? Okay. And so I thought, well, let me. I'm going to start out with the strongest claim. Okay. I'm going to assume that the strongest claim they have is the best one they've got and that everything else is going to be weaker than that. So let's, let's start with the strongest <laughs> one and see if that holds up. And the strongest claim they have, uh, as measured by the one they mention most often, uh, in the different sites, and the one that they trot out first, and the one that they say they have the most confidence in, it goes something like this. If you look at the video of the towers collapsing, they collapse in a rather odd way. Isn't it odd how they just sort of fall onto themselves? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not the way a building would collapse if a jet plane full of jet fuel um, hit them at that velocity and at that angle. That's not the way okay. they would fall. So you think, oh, well, boy, that, that, if that's true, what, you know, what could the government possibly say to counter that? Well, so this gets back to expertise. If you, if you ask— Of course, I don't really know that, but by you posing that question, it makes me wonder— if right. that's how I don't know how buildings collapse. I'm not an expert on that type of thing. I don't thing. either. But by you posing the question, it does make me wonder. Right. How do buildings collapse? Yeah. And and they bring out the uh you know, all these people say, Oh no, no, a building wouldn't collapse that way. Well, who are these people that they're talking to? <laughs> Some of them are architects. Architects are expert at building Building buildings, yeah. <laughs> but they don't generally demolish buildings. So mm -hmm. um I don't know that an architect is the appropriate expert. To my mind, and again, I, look, I'm not an expert in choosing experts, but it just seems to me logical <laughs> that you'd want to talk to a demolitions expert, right. a structural engineer, right. okay. maybe somebody who worked for the Army Corps of Engineers blowing things up, Yeah. right? So you talk to a demolitions expert or structural engineer, it turns out hundreds, or if not thousands of them, have weighed in on 9-11, Okay. And all of them say, you know what? That's exactly how a building would topple if it was hit by a jet plane. There's okay. nothing odd about that at all. And, of course, the conspiracy theorists say, well, they're all on the take. They've been paid off by the government. And, I look, I, I suppose, Ben, that that's possible. It just seems unlikely yeah. to me. In getting into these conspiracies, you have a chapter dedicated to what you call counter-knowledge, which is kind of the, the trade of conspiracy theorists. Is counter-knowledge different than a straight-out lie? I guess it depends on how you want to define a lie. <laughs> Some people say a lie is only a lie if the person knows that it isn't true. Right. And they're okay. deceiving you. I'm using the word lie somewhat loosely in the title <laughs> of my book to encompass anything that isn't true, whether the purveyor knows that or not. <laughs> because for all intents and purposes— uh, I don't want to end up believing things that aren't true, whether it was a, a well-meaning or a, a misinformed or a, a malicious person who's, who's trying to send me down the wrong path. It doesn't matter why I'm being sent down there. I don't want to go there. Yeah. But counter-knowledge is really um, – it's – it, it clothes itself in the language of science or the language of um, factual argument, but – uh, and, and, but it really tries to construct a falsehood. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of it around, uh, particularly in so-called alternative medicine, mm -hmm. where we yeah. find a bunch of quacks claiming that some <laughs> potion or tincture uh, will help you when, in fact, there's no evidence that it will. Yeah. And I think counter-knowledge is uh, – I, I would include in counter-knowledge, you know, this 
this discussion we're having about 9-11 conspiracy, mm-hmm. that it was you know, a conspiracy by the government. Um, they trot out experts who are really pseudo-experts or mm-hmm. non-experts, and they try to give it the patina mm-hmm. of, of knowledge and fact when it, it in fact doesn't yeah. have it. You know, there's that old saying, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. I think a good example of what you're talking about is the anti-vaxxer movement and how that's a case of discredited information taking on a life of its own and people not updating their information. To break down the psychology of it, there's two things Mm -hmm. at work here with the vaccine autism link. One is a phenomenon called belief perseverance, okay, which is um, just a foible of the human brain that once we've acquired a piece of information, our brain wants to tenaciously hold on to it, even when we learn that the evidence that caused us to form that belief is no longer valid. Mm -hmm. We continue to hold on to the belief. And the way that played out is that Andrew Wakefield, who was a physician, published a paper. Uh, I believe it was in The Lancet, but I don't remember for sure. But it I was think a, so, yeah. in a legitimate scientific medical journal. And he claimed a link between uh, the administration of the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and the development of autism. He said that the vaccine was causing uh, higher incidence mm-hmm. of autism. Uh uh, so the prevalence rate was rising as a result of a higher incidence, more diagnoses yeah. of, of autism. Well, his work was discredited. It was retracted. He, was, uh, he lost his medical license. He admitted right. to having uh, made up the data. But here's belief, perseverance, and act, action. A whole bunch of people held the belief of a link, and they could not release their view uh, their opinion that there was a link, even after he was discredited and ag- admitted yeah. to making up data. The second thing that was going on is um, another brain foible, uh, which is that we tend to conflate correlation with causation. Right. So we we see that two things happen together, and we think that one must have caused the other. Right. Now, in some cases, that's true. If if you uh, if you drink a whole lot of alcohol and you pass out, it could be that you've got <laughs> alcohol toxicity and one caused the other. Uh, but you know, I had a cup of green tea this morning uh, on the way over here, and next thing I know, I was talking to you. Mm-hmm. But I don't think now that every time I have green tea, I'm going to end up talking to you. Oh. Unfortunately, green because tea I, is not the the like Pavlov's dog <laughs> leads you over to. The, I mean, I wish it was because I'm having such a good mm-hmm. time. But no, yeah. I mean, they just they they were things that were unrelated. Yeah. Um. So the fact is that vaccines are given at a certain point in the life cycle because they're optimally effective. Then mm-hmm. autism is diagnosed at a certain point in the lifespan. Ah. Uh, because that's when it can be diagnosed. Yeah. You have to wait until the child reaches a certain developmental stage before, um, you know, he begins to talk or fails to begin to talk before he begins or doesn't mm-hmm. begin to make eye contact. I'm saying he because most incidents, most cases yeah. of autism are men, but there are some girls, and yeah. some women, uh, boys and girls. Uh, so um, what we saw was a correlation. They'd get the shot at a certain point in the lifespan. <laughs> They'd be diagnosed with autism not long yeah. after, and so people thought one was causing the other. Yeah. In fact, what you'd want to do is a controlled experiment. Okay. Where you would randomly assign some kids to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Thousands of kids okay. get the vaccine. Thousands of don't. kids don't. And then you wait and see if the autism rates are different. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's an unethical experiment to do. Because you're not vaccinating. <laughs> right. But yeah. guess what? Society but did the— But you could probably find some willing volunteers. Well, society did the experiment for us. Yeah. You would never get ethical approval to do it. <laughs> but in pockets, in different communities in the UK and the United States, because of the autism scare, parents willingly failed to vaccinate their kids. Yeah. And wow. we now have the data. Mm-hmm. The data are very clear. You had measles outbreaks in a number of communities. Yeah. The measles rates went up, but the autism rates stayed the same. <laughs> so controlled experiment. Yeah. Word to the wise. Well, yeah, and you say that the best defense we have is to apply the scientific method to the world around us and the information we're exposed to. How would one go about doing that? Using the scientific method is nothing more than evidence-based decision-making. And in many cases, the evidence isn't ironclad. 
you're going you're gonna to build up a mound of evidence that's taller on one side than on the other. And then at some point when it reaches a certain threshold that's, you know, maybe uh, unique to you, you know, that threshold, <laughs> you, you say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to go with this okay. unless new information comes in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I might reevaluate. Okay. Okay. One of the things that's going on in the current elections, which is interesting, <laughs> is that a lot of information has come out about both candidates in the yeah. last few months. The kind of information that might make a rational person want to change their mind, mm-hmm. regardless of who they were initially for. I mean this in both directions. Right. Um, but it seems as though a lot of people decided months and months ago who they were going yeah. to support, and they don't want to hear any new information. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's irrational. Well, you know, let's apply that then, because I want to uh, go to the Drudge Report here mm. <laughs> and show you a few headlines. But at the top of it, it says... WikiLeaks Hillary health scramble. Below that, her van has a bed and media guards medical scrutiny. Now, does the fact that her van has a bed, does that mean that she has a serious health concern? (laughs) 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 So this is is a kind of argument, you know, when when you study debate or rhetoric in college, this is the kind of argument where... (laughs) You're, it's it's meant to imply something that's unstated, right? Yeah. Which is okay. Only somebody with a health problem would need to have a, a bed in their van. Right? Yeah. But you know, I before I went into neuroscience, I was a professional musician. Uh huh. And pretty pretty much every professional musician I know rides around in a bus with a bed in it. Well, we don't because... want to know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it's not always I don't something want to know about you and your groupies. Well, I mean, the practice as a practical matter. Yeah, um, you've got if you're on a. It seems to me the innocuous explanation uh-huh. is that she's got um, a hectic schedule, and mm-hmm. she might want to take a ten minute power nap in between stops. Yeah, that's reasonable. Uh, or you know, sometimes in weather, it's more practical to drive from one city to another. And if an airport's closed down, you don't want to miss an appearance. Yeah, maybe they're going to be driving all night. Yeah. The other interpretation would be she's so frail and her health <laughs> is so bad that she has to lie down after every single appearance, and she's so she's asleep more than she's awake, and she's hopped up on drugs when she is awake. I mean, the, the the very existence of a bed, I don't think, tells us anything. Yeah. It's all speculation. But it's uh, that headline is placed in between the headline, WikiLeaks Hillary Health Scramble and Media Guards Medical Scrutiny. <laughs> so what else are we left to assume? <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to make of this, really. Yeah. I, I think I, one of the things we do in my lab is we sit around a table, my students and I, uh-huh. and either... We're looking at a finding we just uh, gathered from our own data collection efforts or reading a paper that was published. And the game we play is make up as many alternative explanations as you can. (laughs) This is part of scientific training, and it's part of journalistic and legal training. Lawyers do this, too. So how many reasons could there be that there's a bed in the van? Maybe she's on her way to a homeless shelter and is donating a bed. Yeah. Uh, Maybe the bed's for Bill. (laughs) Maybe <laughs> there's a whole other purpose. Maybe, uh, maybe the bed is uh, because she's uh, got a bad back mm-hmm. and she can't sit for long periods of time. Uh, there could be nefarious and non-nefarious things, but there are an infinity of explanations for these kinds of things. <laughs> what are the newspapers or news sources that you go to personally in the morning? I read the New York Times and the L.A. Times. Okay. And um, the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Uh, every day, and I have physical subscriptions to the newspapers. Okay. Um, I go to Google News every morning because I've customized a news feed for myself. Oh, okay. Uh, which you can nice. do. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm interested in the neighborhood I live in, mm-hmm. and um, what Google News is is it's an aggregator. Yeah. And I'm allowed to dial in that I want more of, say, the L.A. Times and less of, say, the Los Feliz News yeah. or, or whatever, uh, or more of the Huffington Post mm-hmm. and less of the National Enquirer, you know, because they're an aggregator. <laughs> yeah. And I do that a couple of times a day. Okay. Um, I tend not to read TMZ. 
<laughs> and, but as you've pointed out, TMZ has broken stories. Yeah. They but have. that doesn't mean much. They break well, stories sometimes because they don't vet their sources uh, as much as other newspapers. They get it right, but for the wrong reason. <laughs> yeah. So they broke the Brad and Angelina divorce. They broke the Michael Jackson death because they were willing to run with the story before they had corroboration. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm willing to wait a few hours or even a day to get my news and know that I've got a pretty good chance of it being right. Uh as opposed to filling my head with a bunch of stuff that has a pretty good chance of not being right. I also listen to NPR. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, I friends are telling me stuff all the time. Uh, yeah. And I get emails from people say, have you seen this? So I, I'm pretty <laughs> – I, I have a lot of competing demands for my time, but that's, that's how yeah, I bad. solve the news problem. Okay. Well, do you have a website, Dan? DanielLeviton.org. Okay. And well- – We try to give away all of our scientific findings there for free. Terrific. Well, check it out, folks. Again, the book is called A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. Professor Daniel Leviton, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Ben. Thanks again to Dan Leviton for joining me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then you can order his new book, A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age on Amazon, Or you can also download the audio version for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Keep up with Dan Leviton on his website at daniellevitin.com and follow him on Twitter at at danleviton. That's spelled L-E-V-I-T-I-N. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics. And please be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Cast News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.